Amen. So I'm assuming I'm on now. You guys can hear me? All right. Right here is like the sweet spot. All right. I will never move from here. No, I can't promise that. So uh, have you guys ever uh, lost something valuable? Yeah, you guys all think of something that you've lost that's valuable. Uh, have you ever found yourself lost? Well, when I was a child, I remember two specific um, occasions in which I experienced this. Uh, the first was I was driving, I was riding in the back seat of my dad's um, station wagon when I was about five or six years old, and we did, we had the latest air conditioning technology. It was called 455, the 455 air conditioner. Um, that means we rolled out all four windows and went about 55. And I remember just feeling like, oh, it's so hot. It was the summer in Sacramento. We were driving down the freeway uh, to get home. I think it was after church. And I remember my dad had given me a crisp $5 bill. And as a five-year-old, and this is like 1980, right? I just, you just found out how old I am. But in 1980, a $5 bill was like a $150 bill today. That's the inflation, right? So, so I'm thinking, man, I'm rich. And I remember just holding that $5 bill and, and I was kind of playing with it. And all of a sudden, it just went whoo, right out the window. And I remember just as a kid being devastated. That was like everything to me, that $5 bill that my dad had given me. And uh, it was gone, and I started crying, and I, and I was throwing a fit, and my dad was like, what's going on back there? And, and I was like, Dad, what is this? It's gone. You know, and eventually he just gave me a new one. But I wanted to stop the car, to stop all the traffic on the freeway, to look for my $5 bill that was lost. Another occasion, I, I found myself in a, a supermarket. How many of you guys are taking your kids shopping with you? How many uh, keep them right next to the cart at all times? They never move. They're very disciplined. It, five or six years old. Well, I guess I wasn't that kid because I think I saw the Lucky Charms on one of the one of the aisles, you know, and I just started like making a dash for that because my mom abused me and never bought me Lucky Charms growing up. <laughs> and so I remember just like being fixated on this amazing box of colorful marshmallow goodness. And I remember like being distracted and I remember my mom just kind of going about her business and pretty soon I found myself completely alone and lost. And there's nothing like that feeling, especially as a young child, right? You're just like, where did, where did my safety and my security go? Did they forget about me? Am, am I dead? Am I, am I going to be lost forever? And you just start breaking down and you cry. And, and I remember just crying. And, and there was some nice, I think, grandmother that came up and, and took me by the hand and, and took me to the front of the store. And then they, they do over the loudspeaker. If anybody is missing a, a punk little five-year-old kid with snotty nose, uh, come up to the front. I remember my mom eventually came up and, and I was reunited and it was just such a just amazing feeling. And so we've all we've all found ourselves either having something that we value lost or being lost ourselves and hoping to be found. And this morning's story is all about the joy of the lost and found experience. The joy of the lost and found experience. Join me if you would in Luke chapter 15 this morning as we as we dive in. Jesus wants us to know the Father's heart towards the lost. Now the context of this story is uh, back in Luke chapter 13, verse 22, the Bible tells us that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He has a mission to accomplish. He had come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That was his mission on earth, and that's what he's going to to accomplish 
in Jerusalem. And so he's on his way. It's in, it's in his final weeks and months that he is ministering on this earth. And we find ourselves, he had, he had been invited, you remember in chapter 14, to the home of a Pharisee. And he had told an amazing story about God's heart, the heartbeat of God. And then, and then we find himself surrounded by the crowds in different towns and villages. And he begins to teach about what it really means, what it really takes to be a disciple, the sacrifices that are involved. And then at the end of chapter 14, we read this. Anyone who has ears to hear should listen. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, I want those who truly want to know what I have to say and want to apply it to their lives. The rest of you guys can go home. He's really trying to delineate between those that are there just for the miracles, just for what can Jesus do for me, and now he's saying, hey, I want disciples. I want those that are truly going to follow me. And so, of course, there remained a crowd, and the crowd is diverse. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So we see there's still two kind of groups left in this crowd. There's those that are sinners and tax collectors. Why are they there? They're there because, you know what, their, their lives are miserable. They're there because they're looking for answers. They're looking for change in their life. And Jesus seems to be someone who has something to say about their situation, to offer hope into their hopeless existence. And then we have the Pharisees and the scribes. Why are they there? Well, they're there because they're trying to find ways to accuse Jesus. They're there because they think they're the ones who belong in the kingdom. They're there because they're already righteous in and of themselves as they think. And so they're there to sort of like try and say, hey, Jesus, you need to accept us because we're the only true followers. We're the only ones who are really dedicated. And so we see this real mix, and yet the Pharisees and the scribes were complaining about the rest of the crowd. Why in the world would this man continue to welcome sinners and tax collectors and eat with them? Now you've got to keep in mind, who were the tax collectors of that, of that day? Well, the tax collectors were hated among the people of that day, and why? Because Rome occupied the people of God, Israel. Rome was an occupying force. And Rome also would want taxes collected from all their entire kingdom. And so how did they accomplish that? Well, they sold tax franchises. And tax franchises were available to any greedy person who was interested in being someone that would uh, collect the taxes that Rome wanted, but at the same time collect enough for themselves to have plenty of wealth. And so they would really abuse the people. They would really cause a lot of issues among the people because they would rob the people of what was rightfully theirs. And they were known to be greedy and hanging around the thugs of that day to make sure that they collected the, the extra from the people. So no one liked the tax collector. Some things never change, right? Anybody love the IRS? Yeah, you're, you got some problems. Or maybe you work for the IRS. I don't know. I'm not calling you greedy. And then there's the term sinners. What is sinners? Well, that just collects all the thugs that went along with the tax collectors. They're the low-life criminals, the prostitutes. They occupy the base level of immoral activity in Israel. These are the unsynagogues, those that didn't hang around those that were considered godly or religious of that day. 
These are the kinds of people whom the rabbis used to say, let no one associate with such people, not even to bring them near the law of God. So there's a sense that they're beyond loss. There's no hope for those kinds of people. They're so disgusting. They've made so many bad choices that even God's law can't rescue them. But these were the ones who had come to Jesus. They were the ones who were listening and hearing what he had to say. So the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble. Why would this guy eat with sinners and tax collectors? You see, the Pharisees own the synagogue layout of that day. They own the religious establishment. They were the in crowd. And they believed that the way you got into God's kingdom was proper morality. The way you got into God's kingdom was fulfilling all the ceremonies that were required of you. Therefore, there was no way that the sinners and the tax collectors should enter. There's no way that those people could find a way into God's kingdom. And Jesus associating with such sinners, with such thugs and lowlifes, they came to one conclusion. He must be satanic because he's hanging around Satan's people. Verse 3, so he told them this parable. What man among you who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it? When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friend, friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. You realize Jesus is going to draw from their own experience. See, in that day, they understood shepherd and sheep because it was very common. They understood the concept of a shepherd guarding and taking care of the sheep because sheep were an important commodity that day. They were valuable. They relied on sheep for a lot of goods and services that were produced. And so Jesus wants them to understand a principle of the kingdom, so he relates it to something that they could understand, and that's shepherd and sheep. You see, sheep have a tendency to go astray. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that all we like sheep have gone astray. God sees us like we see sheep, as wandering. As, as easily distracted, as people who constantly find a way to wander off, away from what God has. You know, sheep, if they wandered away, their, their existence was they would head off away from the flock, and if they went unnoticed for a period of time, they would find themselves all alone in some place that didn't look recognizable, kind of like myself in the, in the shopping center in that aisle. And they would panic. And a lot of times they would just, they would get hot and they would, they would freak out and they would find a low pit and they'd lay in that pit. And eventually they started like laying further and further over until finally their feet were straight up in the air. And there was nothing they could do. Because once a sheep's on its back, it can't rescue itself. It doesn't know where to go. It can't get back up. And now it's going to slowly die in that position if it's not eating by the shepherd. And so Jesus tells us about this concept, and they understood that if a, a sheep was out on its own, a predator could get it. If it tried to find its way back, it, it, it didn't have the capability. If it ended up just kind of hunkering down and hoping that many times it would just die of either thirst or asphyxiation as it 
as its blood vessels weren't able to function with its feet straight up in the air. And so there's this sense of desperation. There's a sense of what's the shepherd going to do? And Jesus said, hey, you know what the shepherd does. He's going to entrust the other 99 sheep to the other shepherds in that area. You see, shepherds worked fields together, and they, they knew each other. And they entrusted their flocks at times to one another so that they could go and rescue the ones that went astray. And so it's not that the shepherd doesn't have a consideration for the 99 sheep. No, that would be foolish to not care about the 99. So he makes sure those are secure. The 99 sheep are secure with another shepherd. And he goes off in search of the one sheep that is lost. The shepherd was responsible for the sheep. If one was missing, the shepherd had to pay for it unless he could prove that it was killed by a predator. So there's a financial incentive involved. You notice that Jesus says that's the same way that heaven responds to one sinner who repents. One sinner that repents. When that shepherd found that sheep, what did he do? He hoisted it on his shoulders. Notice that God carries us when we can't go on ourselves. Notice the care and the love of the shepherd. He finds it. He joyfully puts it on his shoulders. He calls all his friends and neighbors together, and he tells them to rejoice with him. Notice there's four rejoicing that happens in this passage. The first is obviously by the sheep. I mean, imagine the sheep. It doesn't expressly say in the passage that the sheep is joyful, but I'm sure from experience we know that when we're lost and someone comes to find us, there's joy in our heart. Secondly, there's joy in the, in the heart of the one who does the finding. It says here that the shepherd is so full of joy to find that lost sheep. Now he doesn't have to worry about it being lost any longer. Now it's going to come back to where it belongs. Notice there's others that rejoice. The friends and the neighbors. Anyone who hears about, wow, you rescued your lost sheep? That's exciting. So glad you got that sheep back. That sheep is valuable. That sheep is worth rejoicing over. And finally, there's a joy in heaven. You know, the angels know better what we've been saved from and to than we do. Do they not have a perspective that we do not have? Do they not see what it looks like, what the experience is like in hell, a place apart from God, a place of eternal separation from his love and his grace? Imagine the angels seeing the desperation of that place and realizing that when someone is lost, and away from God, that's their eternal destination. The angels have reason to celebrate when a sinner comes back to God and repents. Do they not? Because they get to see that that person is welcome into heaven. What joy, what rejoicing takes place in that situation? Verse 8, Or what woman has ten silver coins, and if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it. And when she finds it, she calls her woman friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found the silver coin I lost. I tell you, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who repents. I love Jesus because I think the young men that were listening in the crowd could really relate to the shepherd and the sheep. You know, these were men. These were kind of guys that were out in the wilderness. They understood the concept of the shepherd and the sheep. But maybe the young ladies were kind of a little like, eh, I don't really get it. 
you know, I'm not into the sheep thing, right? That's kind of for the guys. So, so Jesus takes time to minister to every segment of the crowd, and he tells a story that a woman would, would totally understand and relate to. You see, Jewish girls were excited because when they got married, they received a headband that they would wear, and it was filled with 10 silver coins. These silver coins were called drachma. Drachma, they were the Greek equivalent to one day's wage. So a woman was given 10 days worth of wealth just to display on her head, to show the value that her husband had placed on her, to show how lovely and beautiful she was in his eyes. And so she would wear that headband with pride, much like we wear our wedding bands today. And so a young lady could totally relate with this story. Yeah, if she loses one of those coins, it means like, has any ladies ever lost their, their ring? You don't have to raise your hand and be embarrassed, right? I know it happens, right? Or maybe the diamond falls out. Or I mean, how devastated are you? How much do you, do you search for that thing with all that you got? Not always because of the value monetarily, but there's a sentimental value, is there not? There's that feeling of, my husband gave this to me. There's only one of these. It was the same with the woman with the headband filled with silver coins. And so Palestinian houses in that day were dark, so she had to light a lamp. She had to search. And she searched until she finally found the coin. And when she found it, she invited others to celebrate with her. See, God's heart is that when things are found, that there's a celebration. Amen? When there's something that's lost and now it's found, there's not just like, well, that was interesting. No, there's a party that starts in heaven and that should reign and ring on earth. We should celebrate. When there's a baptism, we should celebrate. It's not a funeral. It's a celebration. We should be excited about the testimony of someone who was lost and now is found. You know, these two parables help us understand something about what it means to be lost. It means to be out of place. The sheep, it belongs with the flock. Coins, they belong in the headband, in the chain. And lost sinners belong in the fellowship with God. But it also means something about being out of service. A lost sheep is of no value to the shepherd. A lost coin has no value to the owner. And a lost sinner cannot experience the enriching fulfillment that God has for him in Jesus Christ. To be found means that you're back in place, that you're reconciled to God, back in service. Life now has a purpose. You're out of danger. You're useful. You're fulfilled. Jesus was saying something that was shocking to this crowd. You see, they thought that God was distant, that God was kind of up there minding his own business. He had given us the law on the mountain. He was unapproachable. You remember that scene in Exodus 20? He had hovered over the mountain, and there was an earthquake, and there was, there was lightning, and there was thunder, and there was great trembling among the people. And that was their experience with God. And yet now God had sent his only son, Jesus, in the image of the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And he was approachable. And he was loving. And he was showing them the heart of God. Jesus was saying something shocking. That God actually searches for the lost. That God actually will go out of his way to rescue those that are lost. See, the Pharisees didn't teach that. The Pharisees would have said, that is a bunch of hooey. I don't know if hooey is a word. That's a bunch of malarkey. 
whatever the word that you use. That isn't true. And yet God is telling through this story that his heart is truly is searching for those that are lost. You know, number my first point this morning is God takes tremendous joy in rescuing and restoring what is lost. Remember the shepherd with the sheep? He didn't just go out and rescue him. He restored him back to the flock. He brought him back and said, you belong here. You are welcome here. My question is, is our heart the same as what God's heart is? Are we excited when the lost come back to Jesus? Are we, are we excited to restore them? Or do we kind of like look at them from across the audience and say, well, they're just not quite dressed right. They don't seem like, what are all those little things on there? I don't know if they fit in here. Do we make judgments from the exterior? Or, we, or do we have the heart of Jesus, the heart of God, that takes joy in seeing someone who is lost come back? to the fellowship of the Father. Why would God the Father go through all the trouble to send his only son, Jesus, into our world? Because it brings him great joy. Because it brings him great joy to seek out, to restore, and to rescue, and to bring us back to the intended place that he has with him forever. You see, Jesus came to seek and save those who were lost. And he sacrificed so that the lost may be saved. Does the church have the Father's heart? Do we have the Father's heart this morning? The sheep was lost because of its foolishness. The coin was lost because of the foolishness of someone else. You see, the coin didn't jump out of the headband. The coin was lost because of the foolishness of someone else. It's a tremendous responsibility when you think of the weight that we have in the, in the people that we're connected to, the weight, the influence that we have, that, we, that our carelessness could somehow contribute to someone else's lostness. Mothers, fathers, grandpas, grandmas, think about that weight. Think about that responsibility. Don't be careless with the responsibility that God has placed on your shoulders to care for and to shepherd those that are under your care. No matter what our position, we have responsibility. And if we're careless with that, if we're careless as, as people wander off or we do anything to cause others to stumble, that's on us. God's going to hold us accountable. We don't want to contribute to the lostness of others. Now, people who, are, who, who would have been uh, identified with what Jesus was saying they would have identified up until this point with the idea of shepherd and sheep, with the idea of these coins being lost from that wedding headband. They would have understood what Jesus said, and they would say, yeah, Jesus, of course. A shepherd's going to go after the lost sheep. Of course. A woman's going to do everything she can to find that coin. But now Jesus is about to rock the world because he's not done. He's about to share the highlight story in Luke 15 here, and it's going to rock the world because it's going to go against all the grain of the way they think the way that they would have conducted themselves. They're not, they're not going to understand this story. They're going to they're be like, what? This doesn't make any sense. This doesn't add up. What are you trying to say, Jesus? So let's dive into it. Before we do, I want to just share with you a paradigm that we need to understand, and that's this. The Middle Eastern paradigm of a village was this. Everything was about shame or honor. You lived 
to do honorable things. You lived to defend the honor of the family and of yourself. And you did everything you could to avoid bringing shame upon yourself or shame upon your family or those you cared about. That was their whole paradigm. And that's the paradigm in which the Pharisees operated. And that's the paradigm that, in which the people found themselves in Jesus' day. They understood that. They understood that principle was at work. So, so shame and honor, it was huge to them. It was huge. So you have to understand this. The story that Jesus is about to tell in their minds would have been bizarre, unbelievable, incomprehensible, wild, wacky, ridiculous. Everything that Jesus is about to say in this story is counter to the way they think, to the way they think that the person should respond. They do not think this way. The level of outrage just continues to escalate. This was way over the top because it was so shameful what was taking place in this story. Shocking stuff from start to finish. So let's begin. Verse 11. He also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. First of all, this is the most shameful of requests by this younger son. Basically, what he's telling the father is, Father, I want what is coming to me after you are dead right now. I want it now. I want it my way. And I don't care about the respect that I owe you as dad. I wish you were dead. I want you out of my way. I want to take what is mine, and I want to do what I want to do with it. And I don't want you over my head anymore. How shameful this would be in that day. No son would ever do that, would he? How shameful. It brings great reproach, not only on the son, but on the father in his household. How dare a son, the younger son for that matter, say such a thing? You're supposed to get the estate when the father dies. In that day, the older son got two-thirds. The younger son would just get a third. And yet here's the younger son saying, Dad, I'm tired of being around here. I'm tired of living under your watch. I have better ideas on how to live life. And I want what's mine now. I wish you were dead. You know, the village, as well as the Pharisees that were listening, they would expect only one thing. The father would raise his hand and slap that kid right across his snout. That's what they would expect of the father. Because he's got to defend the honor of the family. He's got to put that rebellious son in his place. That's discipline. That's love. That's what he should do. The shameful request, but it leads to a shameful response in their mind. Listen, verse 12, he divided his wealth between them. What? The father's supposed to protect his honor. Why would he just, why would he do that? Why would he just capitulate in this situation and give in to this rebellious son? What a shameful dad. The father isn't doing what he's supposed to do. He's been publicly embarrassed by the son. He should, he should preserve his honor. But he does the very opposite. He goes and says, okay, son, you want it now? I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. I love you. You know, there's a footnote here. The older brother isn't mentioned in this section of the passage. But the older brother's responsibility was to defend the family's honor. So there's something even shameful about the older brother in this moment because where is he? 
Where is he to rebuke that younger brother and say, younger brother, this is ridiculous. What are you doing? Why are you doing this to, to the family, to dad? Stop it. And yet he is silent. It's almost like the older brother's like, wow, good. I'm glad my younger brother's finally getting out of here. I never liked him anyway. But the estate is split. The older son got his two-thirds and the younger son got his one-third that was coming to him. And, and that launches a, a shameful rebellion. Verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. Now, not many days later means that he did it quick. You know what? I got my stuff. I got my plan and I'm heading out. I'm not going to wait. I'm not going to be responsible. I'm going to make sure that I do what I, what I intend to do. You know, in the Greek, that, that phrase, the younger son gathered everything together, that really talks about that he liquidated his share. He turned it into cash. You know what? Like he normally would get donkeys or he would get cows or he would get cattle or he would get some of the land. Well, he didn't want any of that. He wanted the ability to be able to to use money for whatever joy and pleasure that he, he wanted. But you got to understand something about that. It wasn't like in that day you could just go and sell stuff at the local market. No, because these are all things that are tied into the estate. Yes, they've been doled out, but he has to go and, and ask, kind of like hold a yard sale, right? He has to go into a place where somebody's willing to buy a future. What does that mean, buy a future? That means that it's, it's not going to be liquidated until the dad dies. Listen, after he spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. You know, it's not his fault that a famine hit, but you know what? That's how life goes sometimes. If you're not preparing for the future, if you're not making sure that you're going to be secure for a, for a downturn in the economy, right? What happens? What happens? Everything goes away, does it not? Everything is lost. And so here he finds himself. He has squandered his wealth on riotous living, and now a famine hits the land. God's about to grab his attention. You know, famines in ancient history were a horrible thing. We read about them in the Bible. People ate garbage, they ate sandals, they ate stray dead roadkill animals. They even ate, during when Israel was under siege, the Jewish people even ate afterbirth. This is the lowest of low. This is destitution. This is the place this young man finds himself. Verse 15, then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. Now, you got to understand something. Jewish people did not hang around, did, did not eat, did not take part in things that were not kosher. And pigs were not kosher. Pigs are detestable to the Jewish people. And yet here's this young man. He found himself at the lowest of low. And Jesus is making a point. Look, he's even willing to hang around pigs now. Whatever he can do, he finds a way because he's destitute. The verb here talks about attaching yourself like glue to someone. It's like being a beggar. This guy's desperate, so he attaches himself to someone local in a distant land. And he goes, please, 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 help me, help me, help me. I'm desperate, I'm desperate. Finally, this man's like, go feed my pig. Go feed my pig. See what you can drum up. So here's this, here's this young man. Think about it. He was a prince in a wealthy household just a short time ago. And now he's 
He's competing with the pigs for the little cobs that are the nasty slop that they're fed in some Gentile land far away. You can understand the outrage, the shame that would have been involved with this story. As a matter of fact, the, the, the Pharisees are thinking to themselves, Jesus, what are you talking about? This would never happen. This is a crazy story. What is your point? Verse 16, he longed to eat his fill from the carob pods the pigs were eating, but no one would give him any. No one would give him any. You see, sin promises us freedom. Sin gives us that false promise of freedom, but it only brings slavery. It promises us success, but it only brings failure. It promises us life, but we know the wages of sin is death. The boy thought he would find himself, but he only lost himself. When God is left out of our lives, enjoyment becomes enslavement. Verse 17, when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. Wow, you can imagine the desperation. You can imagine this young man just going, I've got to find a way out. I'm about to die. This is a ridiculous existence. I am wrong. I was wrong. What have I done? And he starts to dream back about what it was like in his father's household. And he remembers the lowest of low in the father's household. That's the hired men. And listen to what Jesus uses to describe how the hired men, the lowest of low in that society, were treated in this father's household. They, were, they had more than enough. Ah, more than enough. What does that mean about this father? That means he was generous. That means that it didn't matter what your status was in his world. He treated you right. He gave you extra. He didn't just pay you the minimum. You see, there was, I got to give you a little uh, societal standard back then. You had the landowners. You had the tenant farmers. You had the merchants. Then you had the servants and the slaves. They lived in the household. The household they were like part of the household. Yes, they were servants and slaves, but they were... They were treated as part of the household. They were given lodging and food. And then below them, you had the day workers. You had these guys who just did the grunt work. You had these guys who hung out just at some city gate somewhere where they waited and hoped that someone would hire them for the day. They didn't really have any skills. Sometimes they were, they were lame or they were, they were disabled in some way or another. And they were just hoping that someone might be generous to them and say, hey, come and dig a pit. I need to make a well. My servants, that's beneath that. So, so I'll hire you. You remember the story that Jesus tells in the parable where there was men who were hired at 9 a.m. and then at 11 a.m. and then at 3 p.m. and there was one hired like at 5 p.m. And at the end of the day, what happened? It says that they were all paid the same amount. They were all paid the same. Because a day worker got paid at the end of the day. And that's what this son goes, I would have it better if I just became the lowest of low in my, in my father's house than what I've done on my own strength, where I find myself. And that's how it is with sin. Sin is rebellion to God. Sin is disdain for God's person, God's rule, God's authority, God's will, God's goodness, and God's resources. It's a desire to run from God, to avoid all responsibility and accountability to God. Sin always looks for fulfillment outside and away from God. And it never finds it. 
It leaves the sinner exhausted, empty, hungry, and hopeless. Jesus had really invented the ultimate sin. He's made an example of this young man and said, hey, this is the lowest of low. When he comes to his senses, do you realize that repentance always starts with that phrase? When you come to your senses. When you realize that what I'm doing apart from God is leading me nowhere. I am living a hopeless existence. Yeah, I'm an atheist. Great. What happens at the end? Oh, I'm eaten by one. That doesn't sound very hopeful. You come to your senses. And you realize, like, wait a second. There is a God. Wait a second. I may have some accountability to that God. That God's better than me. That God's higher than me. That God's ways are important for me to understand and to accept and to follow. I need to call someone else to me. Here he is. Just hoping that he can return as a higher man. Verse 18, I'll get up. This is his plan now. He's come to his senses. I'll get up. I'll go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to trust in my father's mercy. I'm going to trust in my father's goodness and compassion. Evidenced by the way he even treats the lowest of people. I can go back to him. He's going to receive me. I know it. He's love. He's good. This is what I know about my father's nature. But wow, this is embarrassing for him. Do you realize what he's going to have to face when he gets back? You know, the villagers knew what he did. The family knew what he did. The whole place. If he shows up again, they're going to shame him. It even says that if you disrespect your father on the law, that you, that you deserve death. That you could be stoned to death. Here's these villagers, if they see him coming, they're going to get ready to pick up stones. They're going to give him some punishment that he rightfully deserves for bringing shame on his family. And yet he's willing to go back. There's no other hope. There's no other hope. He's also looking at years of hard labor. You know, the, the rabbis used to teach, the Pharisees used to teach, without restitution, there could be no reconciliation. You realize he has to supposed to work to find his way back. The Pharisees believed that you were to work hard to find your way into the, into the kingdom of heaven. And yet Jesus teaches a whole different message. That the work is not done by you, it's done by him. That your work is to distrust in the goodness of the Father. In the generosity and mercy of the Father. Now what do you think the Father is going to do when he sees us? Well, the Pharisees knew what the Father would do. He would make him sit in his pig, stinky thing for four days after he found out that he was approaching the city. Why? Because he had disrespected the Father. The Father needs to teach him a lesson. So he's going to wait for him to sit for four days, and then he might come out, and he might talk to his son, talk some sense back to him, and in those four days, he's going to be shamed by all the villagers. He's going to be taught a lesson. He's going to be an object of reproach among the people. That's what the Pharisees expected for Jesus to say next. And yet we read right here that, but while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. What does that tell you? That means the father was looking out. Can you imagine? Every day the father went out 
to stay to the edge of, the, of his property, he would look down the road that extended past the village gate, and he would just pray and hope that his son would appear. He longed for reconciliation with his son. He longed for his son to come back to his senses and to repent of his heart condition. While he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. And he ran, wait a second, that's the most ridiculous thing that has ever been said in the Bible. A noble man, a property owner of that day, wore a long robe and never was he to be seen from the ankles up. Never. That was to be covered. That was your prestige. You didn't embarrass yourself by hiking up your robe and starting to run. And you couldn't run with your robe down. And the nobleman didn't run anyway. He sent his servants. He had plenty of other guys to run for him. Why would this man run? Why would he embarrass himself? That is shameful. And yet he ran. He threw his arms around his neck. And he kissed him. Oh, wow. You know, the word for ran in the Greek is the word sprinting in a race. This is a father who is full of excitement about his son coming back. He doesn't even know necessarily what the son is going to say or what the heart of the son is, but he's sprinting. And he has to sprint down through his property and through that village. And the village is like, what is this guy doing? How shameful. What, a, what is he doing? He's running through town, bringing shame on himself. Shame on himself, taking the abuse. This is selfless. This is self-emptying condescension. Why is he doing this? Because he wants, listen to this, he wants to get to the sun before the sun gets to the village. Because as soon as that sun enters the village, he's going to be mocked and scorned and heaped upon with shame and ridicule. And the father runs through town. He takes the shame and he embraces this boy, wraps his arms around him, kisses his head, and everybody knew what that meant. That meant full reconciliation before that son could even heal the shame. See, that's a picture of the Father, is it not? The Father God went through shame for us. Hebrews chapter 12 says, for the joy set before him. What's that? That's you. That's me. We're his joy. We're that lost sinner. We're the ones that need to come to our senses. We're the ones who have disrespected the Father in his household. By going astray like a sheep, we're the ones. The joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Think about what the Father endured in the Son, in Jesus Christ. Think about what he was willing to endure, the shame, the mockery, hanging nearly naked on a cross, the torturous execution of the Romans. Betrayed by his own people, sold by his own disciples. Jesus took it all. Why? Why did the Father run? Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because he didn't want us to experience shame. He didn't want you to experience the shame of your sin. He wants you to experience the reconciliation of a loving Father instead. That's our God. Amen? The son, verse 21, said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be your son. Think about this. He stops, though, there. Why does he stop? That isn't his full speech that he rehearsed. 
Go back to verse uh, 19. What did he say in the in the in the, the end of verse 19, the last line? Make me one of your hired men. Why doesn't the son say the full speech that he's rehearsed? Because the son knows that he doesn't need to say that. Why? Because the father has taken him back. With full reconciliation, he's kissed him, he's embraced him, he's shamed himself, running towards him. The son knows what the father has done. The son knows that he doesn't have to live to try and earn his way back to good graces with his father. The son recognizes that he is fully reconciled to his father by no works of his own. By nothing that he could do, he just came back to his senses and repented of his wrongdoing and embraced by trust the goodness of his father. What a picture this is of salvation in Jesus Christ. God the Father sent his only son into our world to rescue lost sinners. What is he asking of each one of us? To come to our senses, to stop living on our own, to stop heading down our own road. Whether, they, whether you're a Pharisee and a hypocrite and somebody trying to earn your way to heaven, or whether you are someone who has done the worst of the worst, it doesn't matter. Jesus is speaking to you. Jesus is telling you that you need to stop it. You need to repent. You need to come to your senses. And you need to return to your Father. Oh, there's wanting to be a, a joy in the salvation, a party in heaven. For even one lost sinner. You remember that? One lost sinner. He's not waiting for 100 people to respond. He's not waiting for 25. He's not waiting for 10. Everyone that responds is a party. There's a party. God's joy is wrapped up in you coming to your senses. He's gone to tremendous effort in the person and work of Jesus Christ to provide a pathway of reconciliation back to him. Don't experience the shame of your own sin any longer. Don't be wrapped up in the guilt and the shame of sin. Jesus paid it all. All to him we owe. Verse 22, But the father told the slaves, Quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him. Put, put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Oh, I love this. What is it? What is it? The robe is a robe of dignity. It's full majesty of the Father. Put on a ring. Rings weren't just for looks. That was the idea of authority. That was the idea that you had the seal of the Father, that you could stamp a document, and it meant it was good. It came from the Father. This is authority to act on behalf of the Father. It's like getting the keys to the kingdom. Put shoes on him. Slaves and hired men, they didn't wear shoes. They were too poor for shoes. Shoes were for people of nobility, people who had responsibility. So what is the father saying? The father's saying this to those who come back. Listen to this. Give them dignity. Give them authority. Give them responsibility. They have my dignity. They have my authority, and they have a share in my responsibility. This is full sonship. Ladies and gentlemen, God welcomes us in to full sonship. Jesus said, you are my brother. Think about what he's saying. Wow, how grace triumphed over sin. Grace gives to us when we come the full dignity of God and we are clothed with his righteousness. The full authority of God to act on his behalf and the full responsibility to carry on his work in the name and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
verse 23, then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it, and let's celebrate with a feast, because the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, so they began to celebrate. Wow. I wish it stopped here. I wish the passage stopped here. And I'm probably out of time. But it doesn't stop here. Because Jesus wants to understand something. He wants us to understand something. Not everybody's going to receive this message. And there was a group of people in that audience that were hardening their hearts. It was like, what you share, Jesus, is foolishness. That would never happen. You're trying to relate that to God? That isn't the God that we worship. That isn't the God who is depicted in our Bible. And they didn't want to receive it. But Jesus knew this was in their heart. And so he shares the rest of the story. I'm going to go through it quickly. Now his older son is in a field. I think this is interesting because the son is not hanging out. I'm sure that there's been word that your dad went running through a village. Your dad's gone nuts. But he wants to stay out in the field. He knows his younger brother's back. He just wants nothing to do with it. Listen, as he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned up one of his servants and asked what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The son was filled with anger. The son was filled with frustration. He's like, what is this? My dad is such a fool. My, my younger brother, he's disrespected him. He's taken his inheritance. He's, he's squandered it. And what is going on here? This is just ridiculous action. I need to deal with my dad. Verse 28, so he became angry and he didn't want to go in. This is how the Pharisees were responding. This is how the Pharisees were responding to, to Jesus' invitation to come in. So his father came out and he pleaded with him. I find this so interesting. God cares about everyone. God is willing to go to any effort to save anyone. He didn't write anybody off. God the Father wants all to come to a repentance and a knowledge of the truth. His father came out pleading with him. This is just unbelievable. What a picture of condescension for this dad. Imagine this whole party. I want you to think about this party because this is just an aside. But the party was not for the son. The party was for the father. The party was for the father. The celebration was, yeah, there was a lost son that had come home, but the object of the generosity, the object of the compassion, the object of the one who was willing to reconcile was the father. And the father was celebrating because of what he had done for his son. So he says, hey, excuse me, folks. The party that's for me, I gotta go. You gotta deal with him. So he leaves. Verse 29, but he replied to his father, look, I've been slaving many years for you. Number one, he doesn't address him as father. He goes, look, Look, that's disrespectful. You're supposed to say, uh, Father, sir. No, the, the older brother's mad. He has no respect for his dad. I've been slaving many years for you. That's how he considered his work for his dad. It's duty. It's not an honor. It's not a joy. I've been doing all this work for you. Hopefully those of us in the church for a while, we don't feel that way when we got to set up chairs. Or when we got to come and we got to serve in some way or another. Or we up here playing music and, and using our gifts and our talents. God doesn't want that attitude from any of us. 
I've been slave in many years to you. I have never disobeyed your orders. Ha ha. That he, that he knows. I mean, he wouldn't be perfect. It's like that guy that goes, you know, the rich young ruler. Tell me how to come into your kingdom. He goes, you got you to gotta obey every one of my commands. Every one of their commands. And the guy goes, well, I've done that ever since I was a young boy. Ha ha. He doesn't see the own, his own pride in his own heart. How he's fallen short. Neither does this older son. Yet you gave me a young goat. You never even gave me a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fatted calf for him. Verse 31, we hear the father's response. Son, he said to him, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. God wants the older son to come to his son, to understand that you should celebrate when a lost sinner comes home, not condemn them. I wish, uh, I wish Jesus would have written an ending to the story. But he kind of leaves it like, have you ever read the book of Jonah? And it's like Jonah and God are having a conversation, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, it just ends with a question from God. Right? And you're like, wait, what did Jonah say? And you're like, nobody wrote it down. And you're frustrated. You're like, I want to know the end of the story. Well, what happened to this older brother? Maybe I, should, maybe I should write the end. Maybe the older brother goes, oh, Dad, you're right. I repent. I come to my senses. I love you. I need to come in and celebrate this. I'm sure that's the way it was, right? You realize the end of this story was written? Because who was this older brother depicting? It was depicting the Pharisees. It was depicting these men in the audience. And what did they do? What did they do to the Father's love and heart and compassion in sending his son Jesus? We know what they did. They ended up murdering him. They ended up finding a way to accuse him and to convict him and to beat him and to mock him and to ridicule him and to nail him to a tree. That's what they did. That's the end of this story. The older brother never did come to his senses. The older, the older brother nailed the goodness of God to a cross. And yet God, in his infinite wisdom, used that murder, that betrayal, to rescue and save humanity. That's how the story ends. God, the gracious Savior, the Father displayed in Christ, uses that murder by the means in which he purchases our salvation. It all ends at a cross, where in Christ, he endures death despising the shame, the shame that we should have took on ourselves, that we deserve, he took it, so that we could come back to him and celebrate and have joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just thank you for this word this morning. I thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your compassion. I thank you that you are displayed in this song. Your heart is clearly displayed. You don't want anyone to suffer the their sins, but you're asking all of us to come to our senses. If there's someone in this audience that has not yet repented of their sin, that is still maybe trying to earn their way back to you, 
Maybe they think, God, there's no way you could ever forgive me. You don't understand all the deep, dark things I've done. Help them understand that you do. Help them understand that you were there in all those moments, that you were looking out down the road for them to come to their senses and to return to you. God, you want to embrace every one of us that comes to your altar this morning with a heart of repentance, a heart that asks for forgiveness. You are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God, we give you this next few moments in response to what we've done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.